Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. Our first reading comes from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18. Listen now to the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, too, it is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I to try to count them, they are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite those who are able to please stand for our second lesson. It comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, picking up in the middle of verse 19. This is in reference to Saul, who will become Paul, right after his encounter on the road to Damascus. At this point, he has uh, regained his sight. He has been baptized. Listen now to the word of God. For several days, Paul was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man 
who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. (coughs) After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. And when the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, Caesarea and sent him off to Darsus. And meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It might be a stretch to say that the uh, Bible has certain backhanded compliments, but I must admit my, my mind went to that question, does the Bible have backhanded compliments? As I read this last section, it talks about um, you know, Paul having, um, you know, Paul was preaching and teaching, and then um, he was sent away and the church had peace think about that. I remember once a conversation between two women, and uh, one just offhand said, I think um, eyeliner is trashy looking. And the friend said, well, I wear eyeliner. And her friend immediately said, well, I like how it looks on some people. I remember once a story of actually um, Dr. Dobson shares um, in his 40s playing a basketball game with some guys in, his, in, in their 20s. And he had, um, had played before, and he made a few moves that were really slick, um, faked out a couple of guys, and he was feeling very proud of himself, very confident. He was strutting his stuff. And one of the players said, wow, you must have really been something back in the day. <laughs> Thank you. We know of certain backhanded compliments. And again, I think of that phrase, a bit of humor. Paul is on the way back to Tarsus, and, they, and the scripture says, Meanwhile, the church had peace. Paul is gone, and meanwhile, the church had peace and was built up, living in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. That, for, that piece of scripture follows quite an incident. People wanted to kill Paul. That's not the first time, nor will it be the last. And this whole section of Acts contains a fast-paced narrative of Paul's first years as a believer. In fact, if you pair this portion, a couple other references in Acts and Galatians 2, scholars have put together a timeline of his life in those early years before the missionary journeys began. And as we look over Paul's story, I want us to remember, and look, as we look at our own stories, and look at God's timing 
God's loving timing, and that through the grace of Jesus Christ in our life situations and circumstances, Christ is at work. And to see how the Holy Spirit also works to bring it all together for God's purposes. How it all comes together. Now, the book of Acts occupies about 30-some years uh, in the life of the early church. And like any kind of epic um, book or movie, you'll have a scene, you may go pretty deep in that particular episode, and then you skip to a few years later. Except when Acts was written, Luke did not say, and often say, and a few years later, and ten years later, or something like that. So keep in mind, this is going to reflect a period of time. Uh, and we'll go more into that. But where we begin, Saul is on the road to Damascus. At that point, he is uh, committed to wiping out this thing, um, not even yet called Christianity, but to wipe out those who are following Jesus. Earlier in Jerusalem, you had a man named Stephen who was preaching about Christ. And the, the people, they take up stones, and they stone him, they kill him. St. Stephen, he is the first Christian martyr. And Saul is on the side there, holding their cloaks, cheering them on, maybe even scoring them on the hits that are made. Oh, that's a 5.0. Oh, that's a 7.0 kind of hit. Fully approving of what is going on. He is filled with rage. He is determined, and he's on the road to Damascus, with letters of introduction that he might root out this group. On the way, he is knocked off of his animal and he hears you know, a voice saying, why do you persecute me? Through this realizing is Christ speaking to him. He, of course, is blinded. He's having this encounter and he's brought on to the city of Damascus, a little dazed, a little confused. There in Damascus, he is in a house on a street called Straight. And there's a believer there, Ananias, who is told by the Lord in a vision, go to this particular house, you will find a man named Saul, lay hands on him. And basically Ananias says, as we would say in high school, ain't no way, baby. He does not want to do it. saying, Lord, do you know the record of this man, Saul? He's come to town. I'm, I'm, I'm on his list. I'm on his hit list. What do you mean you want me to go there? But Ananias does. He lays hands on Saul. Saul regains his sight. He is baptized. He takes nourishment. He is fellowshipping among the people. Over time, he begins to teach in Damascus. He actually stays there about three years, teaching among the people, confounding those who questioned Jesus as the Messiah. But then there is a threat on his life, and his disciples get him out of the city through a rather clever ruse. He leaves his three-year chapter there a failure, at least at first glance. And then it follows, he goes to Jerusalem, and Scripture says, they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. They do not trust him. They do not return his calls. They ignore his emails. And when he comes knocking on the door, nobody is at home. He is isolated at first, but then Barnabas speaks up for him and defends him and says, yes, he had a real encounter with Christ. And know what he has been doing in Damascus 
in the years that followed. And basically, if you love me, you love my dog. Receive my friend Saul. He put his name, his reputation on the line. He is received. Paul then speaks to the Hellenistic, in other words, Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. I will go into this more later in the sermon, but for now, keep this in mind. These are Paul's people. He is a Greek-speaking Jew. These are the people with whom he can most easily strike up a conversation. He is amongst his own, and he faces rejection. They attempt to kill him. The believers learn of this, and they get him to the port city, and they send him on his way. When the believers learned of it, we read, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That is his hometown, and off he goes. And meanwhile, the church had peace. Pause for a moment and reflect there on the life of Saul. He has had a failure, and maybe you have had a failure, a setback in your job, a project did not come to pass, something you had intended to be a great success was not. He has faced isolation. Maybe you know of that, being new in town, new in school, new in the workplace. And yes, maybe the first couple of days, it's a little awkward finding out people who, who's there, but maybe there have been times when really nobody invited you to sit at the lunchroom table with them, adults as well as children. Maybe times of rejection by a person, by a group of people, a club, a loss at work, a loss of a job, rejection that way. Yet in all of this, as we will see, God's loving timing is at work. And we see the work of Christ in Paul's life, picking someone with such a particular background and story. At first glance, someone say, might say, Jesus, do you know what you're doing when you're dealing with Paul? And Jesus could simply say, yes, I do know exactly with whom I am dealing. Paul is Jewish. He is well-trained as a Pharisee. He knows the scriptures up one side and down the other. He knows his story. He knows his history. He is a Benjamite of the tribe of Benjamin and proud of it. He had an equivalent of an MBA in his training. He had been a BMOC big man on campus where he was, voted most likely to succeed, guaranteed to make that, you know, four under 40 uh, kind of story among uh, Pharisees today. He knows his stuff, his background. But he is also very much a child of the Greek culture or Hellenistic culture that dominated that part of the world. Short history lesson, like was it 330 B.C.? Alexander the Great conquers um, the Eastern Mediterranean world and on to Persia and even parts of India. And with him, he brought a Hellenistic, Greek-influenced culture that seeped throughout that part of the world. Greek became a language that you could hear in cities all over the place, a language that if you knew Greek, wherever you could go, ever could go, you would find somebody who could speak it and communicate. The philosophy, the plays, the culture became prevalent 
throughout that part of the world. Someone might know their own culture, their own language, but they had a second story, a second culture with them, and that was Greek. Around 200 BC, Greeks living, I'm sorry, Jews living in Alexandria really had lost the ability to speak Hebrew and so had the scriptures translated into Greek and that is the ones, the scriptures that Paul quotes. Those are the ones that he was taught as a child. He most likely knew the Odyssey and the Iliad, having to learn those. He quotes other Greek poets in some of his letters. This was, a, again, a culture, a language you could take anywhere and feel at home. One analogy came to mind was the British Empire at its height. And whether you were in Bombay or Sydney or um, Ottawa, Toronto, it's four o'clock. It's tea time. We have our references. The Queen is going to speak. Even today, the Queen speaks at the, at the Christmas message. And whether you're in New Zealand or in Vancouver, you'll listen to the Queen's message. In the same way, the American, Americanistic culture is familiar throughout the world. And you could even, in some distant city, start a conversation on one of our ridiculous TV shows, mention the characters, and odds are the people know about whom you're speaking. So he's got this comfort level in a culture that travels. And he is a Roman citizen, the third piece. He is a Roman citizen. He was born a Roman citizen, and that gave him entree and privilege and a familiarity in getting around. Later in Acts 16, I think it's a bit of a funny story, where he's in Philippi, the magistrates have him beaten and put in prison. Later, some circumstances take place, the jailer has him released, and he says, uh-uh, no, no, no. Those chief magistrates who put me in prison, They've got to come and tell me that I, I can go. They can't do it, not, not through their assistant. I want them to do it themselves. Because you see, they just put a Roman citizen in prison and had a Roman citizen beaten. And the magistrates do come and they're scared to death because, oh my gosh, we have really broken a big one. Please leave and don't tell anybody that this happened. Later in Acts 22, Paul is speaking with a commander. And again, so she just had a Roman citizen beaten. And the commander, maybe not too impressed, says, well, you know, I paid a high price for my citizenship. Or maybe he's looking at Paul going, where did you ever come up with the money for that? But Paul can come back by saying, I was born one. I'm not a come here, I'm a been here. And also later when Paul is martyred, he was beheaded. And why was he beheaded? because he was a citizen. It was his right not to be crucified. He was guaranteed, if executed, quick, easy, efficient, and relatively painless. At least not as painful as a crucifixion. That was his right. And even at one point during a trial in Jerusalem, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And the governor had to say, he's appealed to Caesar. It's his right. Let him go. So that's, again, that kind of position that he had. He had access and entree and knowledge of his faith and his culture and his politics. That was the kind of person that God sent out into the world to preach the good news and even write some letters. Think of your own gifts and its circumstances along the way in your own story, training that you have had, preparation that you have had that you never knew 
would come into play until it actually happened. I knew of a woman who ended up working with a Christian ministry, and she had a sense of call to it, but she was thinking, Lord, I'm you know, majored in home economics. I'm teaching home economics in school, and now I'm going to be working in a, in a campus ministry. What's okay? But later, a conference center was bought, and somebody needed to help stretch those dollars to plan the menus to make the most again on a limited budget and she found all that home economics training coming to an effect in a way that she never thought she could use it using it a story i've loved to share i've shared before a woman named rita is in a retirement home and um, has is physically um, very weak in fact she's pretty much bed uh, bound to her bed but her faculties are completely there and she is angry and she's despondent and she is grumpy and nobody wants to be around her and one night she calls out and says, you know, Lord, what, what would you have me to do? And she hears the Lord saying, be my ears. And she thought on that. And she had a rocking chair placed in her room and a sign saying, come, come in and have a seat. And residents who did, were able to get around, began to come to her room and just sit and talk. And she listened. Family members of residents would stop off at her room and talk about what was on their mind, what was on their hearts, and she listened. Those who worked at the retirement facility would stop by her room and sit and talk, and she would listen. And so when the interviewer is talking with her, at that point, she's a very happy person, a fulfilled person. She has a ministry in this place. She has a reason to wake up in the morning. Yes, it may take help to get up in the morning, but by golly, she wants to wake up. A circumstance placed her there. A friend of mine is in a new stage of life. He and his wife, uh, they're almost official empty nesters in that the second child is about to go off the payroll. But nevertheless, there is nobody really at home. And he talked about in his career, he said, I know I'm at a place now where I'm more of a mentor. You know, there are men starting out beneath me uh, and and how do I coach them, prepare them, as they're balancing career and home and, and making the most of it all? And also with this extra time, there's a prison ministry of which I'm a part. Again, that's time and stage of life, other things in place to prepare. You've got your own stories. What circumstances are at work? And in all of this, we see the Holy Spirit bringing people together in circumstances just so. At times, Paul, Saul, must have felt alone. He's there, he's blind in Damascus and really doesn't know anybody or no one they could really talk to at that point. And Ananias comes to see him, even though Ananias was saying, Lord, have you got somebody else in mind? Have I heard this right? And there he is in Damascus. And then he gets those threats some years later. And the disciples, his disciples rally for him. And they, come up, and they come up with a very clever plan to get him out. Homes and buildings are built into the city wall, and there's a window in the house. And so through that window, he is let down in a basket. If you could just imagine at the, um, at the gates of the city, where all the enemies of Paul are there, and they're looking at him, just watching everybody. And right behind them, you know, there's come Paul, sneaking away, quietly sneaking away. If there was a laugh track, it'd be going at this point because he has outsmarted them. Yes, he is rejected 
when he uh, initially isolated, excuse me, when he initially comes to Jerusalem. But Barnabas puts his reputation on the line for Paul. And actually, Barnabas is a nickname for son of encouragement and opens the door. And then there are believers in the area um, who, you know, support him. And so when that next plot to kill comes up, they help get him away back to his hometown. What about people in your own life who have been there for you as an encouragement, given you perspective, a hard word maybe to build you up, or even when you heard something from a critic, a friend said, well, I don't really like the way the critic said it, but have you thought about that particular point? Something to think about. Some years ago, I was going through a tough time and was uh, talking about it with my sister. I was very flustered. And she said, now, Jones, you just have to trust God in the middle of this. And you got to ask him, what is he trying to teach you? Don't expect any slack from me today. I've just been to Bible study. you got to trust. So sometimes it means a word like that. Maybe it's just somebody who listened to you like a Stephen minister or someone like a Rita. Or maybe it's someone who spoke up, to, up for you at a certain time of life. My, uh, I know of a gentleman who uh, was on board of trustees of a junior college. And some frequency, some regularity, a young person who wants to make something of himself, make something of herself, wants to get a start at the junior college. Maybe didn't have the best grades, uh, the best background on the front end, uh, to get in, but you know, maybe a little later said, yes, I want to do something. And so, with the reputation that he had, would put in a word with the admissions department, and the person would make a start at that junior college. But this man would always pull him aside and say, now look, I kind of went out on a limb for you, I spoke up for you, what are you going to do with it? Of course, they wanted to make the most of the opportunity that they had, and people have spoken up for you in the past, whether you know it or not to bring you to where you are now. God's timing, his loving timing is at work and through the grace of Jesus Christ, knitting together our life situations, our wiring, our interests, our circumstances. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, it's all being brought together for the divine purpose. Now after our affirmation of faith, um, we are going to have a hymn to sing, there's an anthem, and there's a hymn. And this is your initial take-home assignment. As we're singing that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, Jesus is ours, think of your story. Think of Jesus and your story and the story of this church. And what is he doing with your gifts and with our gifts? And as you hear this anthem sung by the choir, and thank you, Tom, for picking this anthem. It's one of my top ten. Thank you, choir, for singing it. And y'all, I want you to listen. In fact, you won't be rude if you don't look at the choir. They'll excuse you. Read the words in their bulletin as they sing it. Okay? Be still and know that I am God. And know how God's timing is at work in your life. When to go, when to do, what to ponder. God is at work. When one door closes, another door is about to open. And then finally, as we sing Amazing Grace, think of the amazing grace of the Holy Spirit working. The Spirit has been working to redeem, restore a people for generations. And the Spirit is at work now 
through timing and gifts and circumstances to bring about God's plan. His amazing grace that places us in a given situation for such a time as this. And remember those words from Psalm 139 that we heard earlier. Again, how God has knit you together. God's timing, his loving timing, is at work. And the grace of Jesus Christ is at work in our life situations, our particular wiring and circumstances. And the work of the Holy Spirit is bringing it all together for divine purposes. God was at work in, in Paul's life. Because remember, we talked about that road to Damascus. Later, 15 years later, is when he went out on that first missionary journey. Time had passed, but God was at work. God is at work in Paul's life, and God is at work in your life too. Amen.